Well, hello, folks. Welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price. I'm your host. Today, a couple of updates, and then we'll get to today's participant. I'm excited to introduce you to a new book coming out. But first, let me talk about the Esalen Retreat that Rodney Waters and I have coming up next year. Rodney Waters was interviewed in The Sacred Speaks many moons ago. And we're going to do a, a retreat at Esalen, a workshop at Esalen, on, uh, let me see, February 27th through March 3rd of 2023. The workshop is called Portals and Pathways, Ecstatic Experience, Music in the Red Book. Really stoked. It's going to be highly interactive, a lot of music and uh, a concert and a deep dive into uh, music of antiquity and the way in which music has been used uh, typically for a long, long time in um, ceremonial spaces and ecstatic experience. So uh, go check it out. There's a link below where you can look up the, the workshop. It's going to sell out pretty quickly. We've, we've got a number of people already signed up. And uh, so, so go check it out and sign up if you're so interested as soon as you can. Check that out at eslen, E-S-A-L-E-N.org. And again, there's a link below to that particular workshop. Hope to see you there. Uh, second, for updates, uh, be sure to subscribe. It really helps. This, uh, this project's growing, and your participation in it is integral. So if you're watching this and you enjoy the content, please subscribe. Right now, just take a moment. Hit subscribe. Don't pass it up. Uh, support, please. Thank you. Um, the other thing is, this is the first. Uh, the episode that I'm that I recorded is uh, recorded at my office, at my at my, uh, my work office. This is my my home office, and uh, and so it's a bit of a change up. I just want to let you know if you're used to seeing the uh, the recordings here. Okay, so I want to, uh, of course, Modern Nations. Check out Modern Nations at modernnationsmusic.com. Hang out to the end of the episode, and you will hear a song called Clouds, theme song of the podcast. Thank you, guys, and Modern Nations. As always, check out Young Houston, J-U-N-G Houston.org. I'm really involved with the Young Center here in Houston, and wonderful classes are offered all the time at a distance and in person. So check that out. Uh, the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. This, this podcast is sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences. It's a boutique integrative clinic that my wife and I started many years ago. Uh, and of course, check out The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. I have Bill Brennard to thank for this episode. Bill, thank you for pointing Stephen in my direction. And he's got his book, I think it's officially out now, it's called How, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World. And um, read below and check out an overview of the, uh, of the book. Uh, but I want to introduce him and then we'll get started. So Stephen Gray, uh, check him out at stephengrayvision.com. Uh, again, link below. And I want to read his bio, and then we will just jump in. Stephen has been involved in spiritual work and psychedelics for 50 years. This includes more than 20 years as a student and occasional teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, a dozen years actively involved with the Native American Church Peyote Prayer Ceremonies, guest membership in the Ayahuasca using Santo Daime Church, and experience with a number of other indigens. He is also the author of Returning to Sacred World, a spiritual toolkit for the emerging emerging reality, and editor as well as one of the 18 contributors to the popular Cannabis and Spirituality, an explorer's guide to an ancient plant spirit ally. Stephen teaches people about the spiritual benefits of intentional cannabis use and conduct cannabis meditations and sound journeying ceremonies. Perhaps most relevant to the mission of Stephen Gray Vision, for the past 10 years, 
He's co-organized the Influential Spirit Plant Medicine Conference in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. That work has connected him to dozens of remarkable spokespeople on behalf of the skillful understanding and use of psychedelic and theogenic sacramental medicines. And the, the conference just happened, but check it out. It's the Spirit Plant Medicine. I know a number of people who went and loved it. Uh, so as far as anything else today, I think that does it. Uh, as always, check out The Sacred Speaks. Thank you for being here. Be sure to subscribe. And for now, we'll leave it there and enjoy the show. I'm eager to, to chat today. Uh, you, we have an interesting connection here. We, we have a shared, a lot of shared people that we, um, we know, mutual friends, mutual uh, influencers and mm-hmm. um, you know, <coughs> mentors and so on and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. Bill Barnard, of course, is one of the links that connects us. And mm-hmm. I, I, of course he wrote a, a an essay or a, a chapter in your book. And I want to start off here by setting us up because when I was thinking about talking with you, I was very excited about this overview in the world of psychedelics as medicine. And uh, we have so many different levers we can draw from, but I'm mainly interested in your perspective and experience as a researcher and how asking these questions and putting this book together in the way that you did has influenced the way that you think about these ideas um, and who you are and how you show up in the world. So could, could we start off by an introduction with who you are? And then I want to spend a good amount of time talking about your process for the creation of this book. Is that a decent way for us to begin? You can go about it any way you want, uh, John. Good. It's fine by me. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go any direction as, as long as you don't ask me to say that I like Jair Bolsonaro. No, wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. You're on. Um, well, let's start there. Man. Give us give us an overview. This uh, you got a new book coming out, or it's is it already out? Have we? It's coming out um, soon. It's like next week, right? It, well, I I think they said technically the uh, publication date is November twenty second, but um, uh, it it's already shipped to our local bookstore here in Vancouver, Banyan. It's going to supply who are going to have it ready for what we're calling a soft launch at our conference, which is coming up this weekend the Spirit Plant Medicine Conference. Um, so it's out there uh, in certain ways. And uh, excuse me, um, the contributors have, I think by now, all received a copy of the book because three of them have written me to say so. Mm. Uh, and um, yeah, so I, I, I think if somebody wanted to order it, they could order it now. I don't know if they'd get it immediately or how that would go. But it's, yeah, this is, this is the month of the book. Yeah. Good. So, yeah, and tell us about you. What sets you up to be the person asking questions about psychedelics hmm. and how they might be saving the world? Hmm. Well, I don't know how to, quite how to answer that question, John. Um, uh, one way to answer it is that, uh, well, I'll try to avoid going into my history particularly. It's not necessary. But, uh, you know, I'm of the age group that uh, sometimes are called the baby boomers. I never particularly liked that term applied to myself, but <laughs> the more important aspect of that is that uh, I came of age when there was an incredible explosion of interest in psychedelics and spirituality, in particular uh, Asian spirituality, and I was interested in both of those, uh, and so that was kind of the genesis of that in a lot of ways, and I think I was 
if I may say so, born to be involved with spiritual work. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, how many people believe in reincarnation and past lives and all that, but I'm fairly sure I've had connections to this kind of work in the past. So that was the way back kind of genesis. Um, uh, the, perhaps you might say the trigger for, uh, you know, what led me toward this was about 11 years ago, uh, a friend of mine asked me if I would um, co-organize this conference, Spirit Plant Medicine Conference, and that connected me. Uh, my main part of that work was uh, uh, finding and negotiating with or discussing with these uh, potential or would-be speakers. So now I've got, like, this is our 11th year, so I've got 11 years of a couple of dozen people every year that I've connected with. And um, so that kind of, you know, moved me along over the years. One of the one of the steps, so to speak, along the way was uh, Kathleen Harrison, uh, uh, ex-wife of Terrence McKenna. Um, uh, and I had a discussion one year uh, about cannabis and how it was being ignored or not really well representative as a spiritual ally while while it's ubiquitous in the culture and uh, i said that i i'd thought of putting together a book but i didn't feel like i had a whole book in in me for it and she said well you know if you put together a project like that i'd contribute and that was the trigger for me because she's a beautiful writer and you know has deep insight um so that one kind of you know s stepped along the way and then uh and then just over the last two or three years, I, okay, so this is probably my the way I really want to answer this question. Um, what, and I think, I hope I made that somewhat clear in the, in the introduction to the book, actually. And and then people like Chris Beige, mm -hmm. you know, Chris, Chris said to me the other day, he's received his copies. He says, oh, I was surprised you put my chapter first, Stephen. He said, um, when I'm in anthologies, I usually end up near the back because people think I'm, my ideas are kind of out there, you know. <laughs> and I, I wrote him back and I said, well, Chris, I, I, I put you there because um, <clears throat> I, you have the biggest view in a sense, you know, the big overview of what's going on here and where we're going potentially. Um, and I wanted people to, you know, kind of get that, uh, get drawn into that overarching view right away. And uh, so that's that's um, that's kind of what's been driving me for the last few years in a lot of ways is um, this in, you know, in deepening awareness and I, I guess you could say concern, although I'm trying to ride above that uh, in, a, in, in some ways, you know, as I, Chris Killam, one of the contributors says, you know, the yogi rides the curl of the wave um, mm. um, <clears throat> or the edge of the top or whatever. Um, so uh, trying not to worry about our future too much, but I do feel or I do think that uh, we are almost certainly heading into uh, deeper, more turbulent waters, and there's an urgent need for clear, authentic, visionary voices to point out, uh, however that is that can be done, uh, that uh, it's not just a tunnel to hell, but that there is uh, this potential not guaranteed at all, and certainly not in the near future, I don't think, uh, for uh, what uh, contributor to the book Dwayne Elgin calls the uh, birth of a mature planetary civilization, or Chris Bache himself calls the birth of the future human. Uh, and, and then when you, <clears throat> so, so from my point of view, when you 
when you kind of bring in all the all the different strands of um, you know in, information and uh, in, you know insinuation, you might say intuition, all that. Uh, it, 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 it's a pretty strong uh, picture, you might say. Um, for our conference a couple of days ago, we interviewed uh, Chief Phil Lane Jr. He's a hereditary uh, native chief originally from Kansas, Kansas living in uh, our area up here near Vancouver. Um, uh, and he was saying that um, indigenous people all over uh, the Americas and perhaps other areas, yes, other areas as well, are connecting now and they kind of all have the same understanding which in many cases been has been carried along for hundreds of years that they predicted the coming of the europeans and they predicted that this is the time of the great transformation right now so that's actually the overarching message of the book or intention driving the book i guess you could say is that the psychedelics it's not it's not really just about the psychedelics it's the uh you know, that my view, and I think probably the contributors of the book would agree with me, that uh, the, the reason the psychedelics are getting this kind of attention in the book and in the cultures these days is because um, my sort of, um, it's almost like a personal cliche by now, <laughs> um, uh, is that uh, when the patient is in an advanced state of illness, strong medicines are often required mm. um, to, as you might say, shock the monkey, pull people out of habitual patterns, show them the truth about themselves and a larger reality. Yeah, I mean, it's a bold title. I mean, certainly you're working with the idea of how a, a, a taboo and currently illegal substance might save the world or a series of substances. And, mm -hmm. and you even made a note in one of your emails about this title that you were kind of the, having feelings about it. It was my projection. I'm curious how you came to it and what you're proposing, what, what you're really going after with, um, and also talk about what the book is. I mean, let's let everybody know mm -hmm. what, uh, what the vision really is. And then we'll dive into some of the content. Yeah, sure. Um, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a little bit hesitant to, um, you know, pass the buck, as it were, onto the publisher. But in fact, it was their choice of title. Um, and in, and I actually had uh, two Zoom conversations with the head of marketing at uh, at the publisher. Um, I'd sent, I sent them 10, 10, 10 or so suggestions for titles. Um, and they didn't really use any of them. They incorporated a few words from them. And so their first title, oh gosh, pardon me, publisher, don't mean to insult you, but their first title was How Psychedelics Can Save the World. It didn't have the word help in it. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I, I was starting, I, I was never completely comfortable with that, um, but I also was uh, getting feedback from a couple of people like, you know, Stephen, some serious thinkers might, you know, dismiss this for that reason, you know, uh, for the title. Um, it, it, it smacks of, you know, I don't know, like dogmatism almost, or sort of like Jesus saves or something, you know? Um, uh, uh, so, so I had this discussion with the publisher or with the marketing director and, and at the end of it, I thought I'd convinced him to change it to how psychedelics can help transform the world. 
Um, and then he, he said he liked that, but then he took it back to the marketing team and in, even the publisher, uh, the founder or the owner of the company himself, and they all wanted the word save in there. Uh, so I just reconciled myself to that, but they did add help. And I think that makes a huge difference. It's just, mm -hmm. in other words, it's they, if there's even a they about psychedelics in a sense are, uh, you know, one of the tools or some of the tools that, that can help with this. And as I said a few moments ago, perhaps certainly our most powerful tools in the, in the short run, um, it's, you know, as I'm John, I'm sure you're aware, uh, it's complicated. Uh, and just yeah. because even if you have a, you know, an experience of Satori or oneness or whatever you want to, you know, however you want to describe that, there's certainly no guarantee that you're going to be able to integrate that back into, uh, um, as Houston, uh, the great religious scholar Houston Smith used to like, used to say, uh, or said at least once anyway, uh, um, that, you know, what's more important than uh, altered states is altered traits, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's kind of that. <laughs> and the, I think I already spoke about the, the mission of the book in a sense is that, you know, um, for all these different reasons and for all the different threads of information and inspiration that are coming in, it appears that we've kind of um, come to this nexus point, this incredible, da incredibly dangerous, but um, uh, a moment with immense potential as well. You know, another favorite saying of mine, I forget, I, I forget, one of these is, Vic, I've got two that I always like to try to, one, one of them is by Victor Hugo, and I forget which one that is, it might be this one, which is necessity <laughs> is the mother of invention, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the other one uh, is, uh, my other favorite is, there's nothing as powerful as an idea whose time has come. So um, I would say that idea that we don't know who we are, and we need to know who we are, uh, has come. Uh, it's, it's, you know, kind of slapping us in the face, to put it mildly at this point. And, and uh, the exciting part about this moment that we live in, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and many others, certainly not me alone, uh, is that uh, necessity is indeed the mother of invention. And as conditions, uh, you know, deteriorate uh, in multiple ways on the planet, there will be, there already is, and there will increasingly be incredible amounts of innovation and um, creativity applied to trying to remedy our misunderstanding and our, you know, overburdening of the planet, etc. Well, and let's let's go there, because it seems like that is the overarching theme that there is there is a problem. And mm -hmm. would you and I, I'm also holding on to this thread that you helped uh, give birth to this plant medicine conference and I, I want to certainly hear about that too but mm -hmm. um, so would you speak to that what why now why psychedelics what is the problem that um, it's trying to um, to meet uh, the lack that it's trying to heal and uh, mm -hmm. and of course then we can talk about all the problems with how we're doing that how we're bringing psychedelics into the foreground but let's start there what what's mm -hmm. why why psychedelics why now mm -hmm. well <clears throat> Yeah, well, for the reasons that I mentioned already on one level, you know, that we've reached this point. Um, you know, here's something that just popped up into mind. Sometimes I'll just, I like to run with these little things, you know, like a, almost an intuition oh, or something. Yeah. Um, 
uh, here's a way that you might look at the development of human history. Um, and, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, exactly literally true in that sense, but let's just use it as a potential framework for a moment. Um, let's say that this planet was designed to be an environment. Uh, okay, let, let, let me just step one step further back. Let's imagine that the creator or creators um, are um, great artists and they're, and they're incredible uh, creators, like scientists almost, and they're going, okay, let's try this and let's try this and let's try this. So, um, so this planet was, a, uh, you might imagine, as a design for an incredible environment of an extreme beauty, an incredible interdependent balance of everything connected, you know. Um, I mean, I always just, you know, when I ever stop to think about it, I just consider this, you know, this environment, this planetary environment, or the whole thing altogether to be a miracle beyond comprehension, you know. Mm. Why, do, why do we have exactly the right amount, the right percentage of oxygen in the environment, <clears throat> in the air, for to, to live. If it was a couple percent more or less, we'd die, right? We'd all die. Um, if the sun was any more, in, any, any more, well, it gets any more intense, we might die, but that's another issue. You know, and, you know, you go on and on and on how everything is connected. Um, it's just a truly brilliant place. So in this kind of, you, you know, maybe we'll call it a fairy tale for a moment here. Um, uh, <clears throat> the um, being, the, the, the humans or the beings of the planet were originally meant to be able to explore a level of independent uh, you know, agency while still connected to who they really are, to the fact that they are spirit. We are um, spirit beings, you know, um, shards of God, if you will, uh, and so on. And so knowing who we are as divine beings, as, uh, as Bill Barnard calls us, you know, mm -hmm. um, in the book, uh, and then what happened was we got a little too good at it, perhaps you might say, you know, we got too uh, carried away with our individuality, our, our um, separateness, and uh, over time closed off from that realization. And so um, without that realization, we became lost children and nervous children, you might say, not knowing who we are, trying to find a way to, to establish some kind of solidity and empowerment on this planet, which you might say is ego. And so ego got a little out of control, so to speak, and uh, the dominators dominated. And, you know, we have the last several thousand years of history run by mostly men and um, men uh, who have wielded power um, from an ego point of view, not from a compassionate or connected point of view, you might say. So that's one way of looking at what's brought us to this moment. That's probably not the only thing going on. There might be some other kind of inevitability, uh, you know, things like the uh, the fact that we have 8 billion people on the planet and we're stressing the resources of the planet, you know, beyond belief, et cetera, et cetera. But for whatever reason, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> if I may, I'd like to uh, uh, bring up Chris Bache here. Yeah, um, great. I really so, loved that. And I've got his book on my desk as well, which I'll eventually mm -hmm. be trying to chat him up. But that, that was a really solid essay. I, I loved that it was at the first. I, <laughs> I fell right into that thing, man. Thank you. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So he has, he has this book called LSD in the Mind of the Universe. Mm -hmm. And it's, <clears throat> it's um, uh, 
commentary and sometimes including even transcripts of the notes that he took during a 20-year period of 73 high-dose LSD sessions in the Stanislav Grof protocol, whereby you um, lay down on a couch or whatever with mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, eye shades and a carefully curated playlist of, of appropriate music and a sitter to make sure you don't, you know, kind of get up and jump out the window or whatever. Um, and... Um, <clears throat> And then and and LSD is a long-lasting substance, that, and of course. Uh, so you go through that over the course of a day, and then the next day you religiously transcribe everything. So he would actually put on the headphones again on the Sunday. He'd do this on a Saturday usually. On the Sunday he would then put his headphones on uh, so that the 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 music of a particular you know point of the journey would trigger the memories of that um, and then write it all down in detail so he did that 73 times and the way he described it is that uh, basically uh, in every journey the first two hours were really difficult as he um, died to different levels of his uh, self-identity his ego first of all, the personal ego, and then even the species ego. And he said it was sometimes extremely painful to do that. But for whatever reason, he in particular was able to hang in um, and stay present with that. And then at a certain point, a couple hours later, he sort of burst out. I'm, I'm kind of using more my language than his <laughs> at this point. Um, he kind of burst out into the what he has sometimes called the vast intelligences of the universe. And they started teaching him at different levels of power. Of power, he said it was extremely powerful. He said there was, there was one where uh, where the energies themselves were so strong it took him a year to recuperate after one of these sessions. Wow. Um, uh, he, he said you had to, in his words, cohere at different levels. You had to be able to um, uh, handle the power of that um, energy coming in. You know, and so. Uh, what what they started to teach him, and I think particularly the latter third or so of this twenty year period of these seventy three high dose sessions, um, five to five hundred to six hundred micrograms per session, by the way, um, was that we are indeed heading into uh, what I think he calls a death and rebirth cycle, um, and as they got closer toward the end, they apparently uh, became more confident that we are most likely to pull through it eventually. But it's it's not going to happen soon. It's uh, you know it's something that uh, is going to continue to deteriorate because basically, you know, the death has to happen before the rebirth can happen, right? Mm -hmm. That's a you would know, John. I imagine that that's a, a kind of a, a trope that's been around for a long time, right? I think there are sayings from Jesus to that effect. You can't pour new wine into you know old skin or you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, there has to be an emptiness, uh, a, a, a dying in, uh, out of what we're doing. And, and what we're doing, you know, collectively uh, at the moment is still on the wrong track overall in terms of, you know, who's running the show and what they're doing and what, where they're coming from with all due respect to any individual human being. The, you know, the governments and corporations still don't understand this, you know, what we're talking about here, you know. Uh, that we've come to this point, and there has, uh, you know, they're they're slowly getting it, uh, but essentially the the message still hasn't gotten through to sufficiently for there to be the kind of change that needs to happen, really. It's, this is where I get into a weird. I mean, I know that I I have this. Ex I understand these narratives about there there's a problem and we need cleansing. You know uh -huh. what 
what's funny to me though is that you're probably the right person to talk to about this aren't we always isn't that always like couldn't we say that given the evolutionary nature of human beings we're always mm -hmm. going to be in a state of flux and there's always going to be need for cleansing and we'll always be kind of and what i like about chris bash's stuff is that it posits this um not not just the problem but that because he's gone through these experiences that a lot of people that experience plant medicine or psychedelic medicine, entheogenic medicine, they, they have these direct experiences. And, and it, it then, as a, as a good Tibetan Buddhist might say, kind of you're then freed from the wheel of life and death, which, so where, where does that take us, that the universality of this dimension of kind of we are... Um, this guy just talked to Walter Hanengraf. He's he's talking about how the the Greeks were looking at the Egyptians and oh man, the Egyptians shit they had the good medicine, you know. And then <laughs> now we're looking at the Greeks and then or the East, or indigenous folks, you know, or uh, that that we're always looking to somebody else for the medicine. And mm. isn't that a universal pattern? Any any thoughts? Hmm. Not quite sure what the question is there. Well, yeah, um, I mean, ahead, I'm, say, I'm, say more. I'm trying. I'm trying to get at. You know, anytime I ask somebody like, "What's the problem?" Yeah. Mm -hmm. We tend to need these narratives of, "Well, we've accumulated some perspective, or we've gone wrong." You know, on in this direction, we've gone too much this way, or not enough that way, and that there's something universal about that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so I'm pushing into this like. The time is now, yeah. Um, as opposed to no, it's always now, and we are <laughs> always in this space, and that there is something powerful, and because you do in your book, you have a lot of this like call to action around certainly the people who are navigating through what's happening mm -hmm. with our Earth, with our relationship to the planet, with gender, and uh, our, our issue with power dynamics, and the way that. There's been an inequality in the balance of power and the ways in which we express our identities and create our cities and governments. And I mean, I'm with you. I'm totally in that. I, I think there are problematic issues. But the only thing mm -hmm. I'm pushing into here is that isn't that something that we'll always be mm -hmm. doing? Well, I think it would be awful arrogant of me to think that I know the answers to those <laughs> questions. But um, <laughs> Here's my here's my best shot, and please, anyone watching or listening, it's just one person. I love it. Yes, view. You know, just one small person out of eight billion. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, yes, on one level, I agree. You know, it's always now in that sense, but um, we've never stressed the carrying capacity of the planet before. We we never had. You know, a thousand years ago, we didn't. What I, what do we have like fiftieth of the population, one hundredth of the pop, one thousandth of the population of now? I don't I don't know. You know, um, <clears throat> it just seems to many of us 
that all of these factors are dovetailing now for whatever reason. And yes, I, th I know a cynic could say, yeah, you know, that's kind of my generation or me thinking or something, you know, or magical thinking that, yeah, there's something special about this particular time. And, you know, that's perhaps something to be aware of, uh, you know, as a, p a possibility. But I, I do think that there's so much information pointing to the fact that um, nothing has Nothing in our history has piled up in the, in the same way that it has now. You know, we, eight billion of us is, speaks for itself uh, yeah. right there, you know. And then, you know, you have to, you know, to get into the, the prophecies and all that, you know, there has to be a, a, a willingness to sus suspend, uh, you know, disbelief to some degree for the, for the sort of hard-assed hard uh, rational reductionists in the crowd, you know. Um, uh, but, um, well, let me just give you a very, very small example. Uh, I told you we interviewed this Chief Phil Lane Jr. a couple of days ago, and uh, we were kind of almost joking about how so much of uh, the connections these days are made doing what you and I are doing right now on Zoom, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he said, that when he was a young man, he was, I can't remember the context, he was sitting with some native elders down in Oregon. And this guy said to, you know, sort of leaned into Phil because he knew he was going to be a future leader. And he said, you know, when by the time you get to my age, you're going to be sitting in front of a screen and you're going to be talking to people all around the world. This was back in the early 70s when wow. none of this stuff existed, right? Computers took up whole rooms or whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, Native peoples all over the world, Indigenous people all over the world have sensed, have felt the, the, the coming of the Europeans. They saw it as inevitable and actually part of the process, you might say. Hmm. Um, and they've been predicting for a long, long time uh, that it would all come to a head now. So that, for me, that's, there's a lot of um, evidence pointing in that direction in that regard. And then look at the climate, you know. I mean, yes, the climate changes on its own anyway, regardless of whatever humans do. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, it's going haywire. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't know most people are even, if they're not paying attention, if they're not looking at the science, they may not even be aware of <clears throat> how dangerous the situation is right now, you know, with melting glaciers and warming water and uh, the sort of the connection, pardon me, of feedback loops around the planet, climatically speaking. Um, I think we're facing a lot of, you know, we're about to face dramatically increasing challenges just on that level that we're only going to solve by coming together. You know, so this is actually one of the central, what would you call them, archetypes of the whole issue is <clears throat> the recognition. Um, and in some of this can, you know, perhaps bleed into the woo-woo for, again, the skeptics and cynics in the crowd. But um, uh, I, I and many others believe that that um, power in the power of shared uh, intention, if you will, um, you know, that collective activity, that people getting together um, and uh, applying their, you know, their best ideas is going to be increasingly um, in the forefront as we go forward. So um, I suppose this was a somewhat uh, roundabout, roundabout and rambly way to answer your question. Uh, um, I just do think that uh, qualitatively, 
uh, we're in a different place than we have ever been on this planet. And yes, mm -hmm. ego has always been, you know, if you will, you know, the Tibetan Buddhists, as you mentioned a moment ago, 2,500 years ago, uh, the Buddhist, uh, the Buddha taught that, um, uh, you know, the four noble truths, you know, the truth that uh, we are suffering and the reason we're suffering is because of our misunderstanding of who we are and that there is a, a liberation from that uh, suffering you know so that's universal that's eternal uh, always the case uh, but you know i would like to make the case that uh, now we need a large number of people uh, to fairly rapidly um, uh, make uh, you know get into bed with that understanding if you will to embrace it, to begin to manifest it, to live it. And again, that's why the book, um, because as I said earlier in the conversation, um, you know, when the patient is in an advanced state of illness, oftentimes strong medicines are required. In the case of psychedelics, certainly not for everybody and certainly not the only path uh, available or the only way, but at their best, when they're used, you know, by the right people in the right circumstances and integrated back into the daily walk, um, they're probably unparalleled for, you know, what they can do in the way that they, op you know, open, open us up. Okay. So there's our, there's our diagnosis, right? Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I heard in, in what you were saying is that our culture is sick and that I can, and I can understand that I, I really track it because one of the things I do as a psychotherapist is I'm looking at certain belief patterns that have been interjected into the individual's perspective and live themselves out as almost autonomous beings that infect their perceptions and perspectives of their lives and the mm -hmm. people in their lives. And that you, you know we come to the therapist and say, this thing keeps happening to me and I don't know why. And come to find out, oh yeah, I'm relating to my world as if this is true. And and so the, the therapeutic endeavor is one that reframes, reconnects, dissolves whatever kind of autobiographical content might be wrapping that um, that issue, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so and I can blow that up and say, okay, on a collective level, we would of course do this, except we might do it in a more foolish um, dense kind of way because the more people you add, the the less brain cells you have. Oddly enough, and and so we, the culture itself need, is sick, and I, and so and this is why I think let's now move to treatment plan. Like why why would psychedelics offer a, a curative um, process for this sickness that now we can agree we all carry individually just because of the nature of my existence and the traumas of my life and my birth, but also collectively because we have these systems of thought that have transcended my autobiographical experience, yet continue to have um, an influence on how I'm showing up on a daily basis. And mm -hmm. in doing so, it's not really serving my broader, more expansive um, experience of being as authentic and real and genuine a human as I possibly can be when I'm playing mm -hmm. out these old patterns from back then. So yeah. let, let's get into treatment plan. Like why psychedelics? Mm -hmm. Well, um, <clears throat> maybe we could call them reality medicines, you know, uh, maybe we could, maybe we could ditch the word drugs for now. Um, you know, I, Terrence McKenna once said his definition of a drug was something that, uh, 
promoted habitual unexamined behavior. And from that point of view, psychedelics do not promote habitual unexamined behavior. Um, And uh, what's his name? Tom Robbins, uh, uh, the the wonderful novelist, (coughs) many novels, including uh, Still Life with Woodpecker. Yeah, oh, yeah. so good. Anyway, in one of those books, he said, uh, I think it was in a book, uh, either that or an interview. It might have been an interview. Anyway, he said, he said, I'm not interested in any drugs that make me think I'm better than I am. I'm interested in the drugs that help me dismantle any of that kind of <laughs> arrogance, you know. Um, so, 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 what w- the way I'd like to, you know, um, you know, propose uh, the, uh, you know, potential of psychedelics, perhaps, uh, and again, it's just one way of looking at them, but might be might have some validity um is maybe you could think of them as having sort of two complementary um, approaches if you will um <clears throat> one of them is uh their truth they f- can function as truth serums um and so they can um they 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 in a sense can show you you know and this is there's immense amount of evidence to show that this is the case. Uh, um, you know, with people who have used these substances therapeutically, ceremonial, and so on, they can show you, um, you know, the, the the sort of unconditional truth of who you are in that sense, uh, individually, like in your own personal history, your own personal psychology. They can, different ones function differently. Boga, for example, is sometimes described as um, uh, pulling down a movie screen. You know, when they work with um, Iboga and Ibogaine for uh, uh, addiction problems, um, people have described that it's like it pulls down a movie screen and it literally, visually almost in a sense, maybe visually, shows you the places where you left yourself, as it were, as a young child perhaps, you know, because of you know, traumatic conditions that you were dealing with at the time. Um, Gabor Mate talks a lot about that as well, um, how, you know, um, we're all, we all have some degree of, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. some degree of it, yeah. Um, because to some sense, we all turned away from our natural beings, you know, our unconditioned um, divine beings, again, using the Bill Barnard, um, you know, way of talking about it. So, um, so the, so one of the functions of psychedelics potentially when they're used properly, um, safely, um, with good guidance of one kind or another, is that um, they can show you those places where you're wounded, where you have been wounded. Um, and by seeing them, um, I would uh, think, you know, you're the expert here, you know, in your field. I'm not in your field, but, uh, you know, simply uh, uh, by... Um, being able to bring things up, look at them clearly, um, non-judgmentally, then you can release them potentially. Maybe not necessarily immediately, but over time. MDMA, for example, although not Ooh. actually truly a psychedelic, does exactly that mm-hmm. um, potentially. You know, um, and which is why the organization Maps and others are are uh, pushing it uh, as for uh, treatment for PTSD. That it has this kind of um, remarkable kind of tripartite uh, capability of knocks out the fear factor, brings in the love or the compassion, and keeps your mind clear so that you can communicate with a therapist and you remember it. Unlike, say, uh, 
you know, a psilocybin or ayahuasca journey where so many things happen that you, you know, you might remember the, the nub of it, but you're not going to be able to recount the, the main details. And you certainly don't want to be talking about it while you're under the influence of, mm-hmm. you know, of the substance generally. Um, so, um, you know, MDMA, uh, you know, for example, my wife and I did uh, MDMA once together. We didn't do it for therapeutic reasons, particularly. We did it, well, I guess you could say to, you know, to connect with each other more. But we had sort of individual experiences, and she had this experience where it wasn't on her mind at all. She didn't even know it was an issue. But her mother died from cancer when she was 13 years old. And she, when she saw into the fact that she was still carrying anger now at the age of 60 about her mom because she felt like her mom gave up on life. She never realized her potential. She was a creative person, but she lived the life of a 50s homewife with a housewife with six children and never really rose to her potential, got cancer and died at the age of 55. Mm. Um, but under the influence of the MDMA, uh, that anger that Diane felt was surrounded, almost embraced, you might say, by compassion. So there wasn't really any anger. It was just the recognition that she'd been carrying the anger. So the psychedelics have that kind of potential to show you um, uh, the places where you've stopped yourself, limited yourself, and so on. And uh, and the other function, if you will, not really separate, I don't think, but the other <clears throat> capability that they have, I would say, is they can also show you what surrounds all that. You know what what Buddhist teachings might call unconditional reality. They can drop you put into uh, the connection, the fact that you are connected, you know, with this term oneness that comes up so much, you know, it's not an airy fairy or abstract concept. It's a real, it's a real experience that people can have. And ideally, that's where we need to go, you know, in terms of, you know, we're talking about treatment collectively, uh, is the recognition that we are connected to everything, you know, that we are embedded in everything, that there's a an mm-hmm. interdependent interconnection going on, uh, that we have separated ourselves. That's what I was referring to in my fairy tale from earlier in the conversation, where we just got too disconnected overall. You know, this is these are generalizations, of course, but you know, as a species, for the most part, over the course of history, we became so isolated in a sense from our connection to the divine, to the Holy Spirit, the Creator whatever you want to call it, you know. And so now is the time where there's no more wiggle room anymore, you know. The, the flatland days, you may say, are over. And, uh, you know, at a, because of the unprecedented dovetailing of all these conditions, uh, you know, that it's pedal to the metal time, you might say, right? So, the, you know, the treatment plan, if it involves psychedelics, is, um, you know, take them in the most efficacious conditions possible, um, recognize that they can dissolve you out of your habitual patterns. Um, don't judge whatever comes up. Uh, that can be a, create what's called a bummer oftentimes, you know. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Terence McKenna once said he thought the 60s were, were largely misplayed because people took these substances that have this potential to, um, you know, haul you out of your habitual patterns. Uh, which is, you know, ego death, you know, in the, in its extreme or ultimate way, and um, and uh, and that's terrifying if you're not prepared for it. Uh, and so most people, uh, you know, back then he was saying, never wanted that to happen. 
and we're just sort of glad to have survived, you know, mm-hmm. a, a skirt along the edge of of uh, ego death. He had a he had a favorite saying, which it, it wasn't his, but um, but I always liked it. He said, uh, "He's like we're whistling past the graveyard, right? Mm. This is kind of the human condition, in a sense, you might say, that uh, the graveyard meaning ego death. That we that you know Buddhist Buddhists have analyzed this, you know, to the nth degree that the self that we identify as the self doesn't exist. It's an illusion. It's a collection of stories, concepts, dogmas, beliefs, you know, that we've put together. Um, if you want to really get into that, study Tibetan Buddhism because they, you know, they've got you know thousands of pages on the the many layers and the ways that we do that, uh, have done that, skandhas and all these different things that they that they talk about. Um, but basically, the it's 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 what we identify as our self generally um, from the ego angle so to speak is uh, it doesn't exist other than in this collection of stories and so what the psychedelics again can potentially do is pull you or drop you out of those stories and show you something that's real that's why I started this by saying I see them I'd like to see them as reality medicines that way I like that um, the, if we, if we take this line of thinking and still push it further around our culture being sick, I, I think of how much influence you have both leading a conference that's working with plant medicine, also writing this book. You have a number of people that are speaking from the perspective of the indigenous traditions. <laughs> and, you know, if our, if our culture is sick, and we have no structures in place to help support these kinds of alternate states of consciousness and alternate forms of knowledge. We tend to borrow from other cultures, but what, what do you see happening regarding what is going on with this dominant capitalistic, monotheistic, democratic, materialist lens and what we would call indigenous forms of knowledge and experience? What can you comment on that? Oh, yeah. There's a couple of books in there, John. Good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question um, for me, man. I, I, I'm thinking about mm, it all the time. That mm-hmm. I've been thinking about it from a parenting perspective. It's like, well, mm-hmm. I, you know, we're trying to figure out how to parent children and also work two jobs and, you know, mm-hmm. be all the things we do outside of community because we're part of this individualistic mm-hmm. worldview. So, yeah, just take that and run with it. We'll see where we go. Yeah. Oh boy, yeah, there's a lot of ways to talk about that. And again, please, anybody watching or listening to this, don't take me as an authority. It's just one person's understanding or even attempt to understand, you might say. Um, so, you know, I have to confess to being an idealist in a sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the, the great uh, philosopher Yogi Berra, you know who he sure. is? Sure. <laughs> he was the accidental philosopher, you know. I like and his stuff. He said, uh, more or less uh, in these words, I'm not sure if I remember the exact wording, something to the effect of, um, if you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. Um, And the reason I mentioned that one is because without a theory, without a vision of what's possible, then you might end up somewhere else, basically. So so, um, in that sense, I would, uh, again, confess to being an idealist in the sense that um, I, I like to entertain visions of what's possible. 
Um, as Desmond Tutu, the great bishop of South Africa, said, most people's problem is they don't believe in the possibility of possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, so here's one possibility. Uh, you were referring to, you know, the dominating capitalistic uh, model that's been, in a sense, running the world. Um, I think it's upside down in a lot of ways, you know. I mean, it's it's a complex topic, and that's why I say I don't want to get you know, I, I'm yeah. not an authority, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, don't know all the ins and outs of that. Um, uh, but, uh, there's something fundamentally upside down about the fact that say our basic needs are controlled by people whose main conf- publicly confessed, uh, motivation is profit, you know, um, uh, that's the model, you know, profit for the shareholders, profit for the company, profit for the CEO, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's based on a debt model. It's based on a scarcity model. Uh, it's based on a competitive model. It's based on a, a fear model. It's based on an ego model. It's based on a lack of trust in ourselves and each other kind of model. In contrast, and again, and let's let's make this really clear: we are not idealizing indigenous cultures. They've all had problems, and and especially if you look at them today. But the reason that they're in tatters today is because those cultures have been disrupted and destroyed. You know, uh, mostly. Um, you know, there were when when those cultures were intact, many of them, uh, they had uh, an understanding. Uh, for example, um, uh, okay, let me maybe put in, go into this one a little bit. Uh, there was a, uh, there was an, in, in, I think it was in the 1870s, there was, a, there was a bill in the United States Congress that was passed called the Dawes Severalty Act, D-A-W-E-S, and I think the guy's name was Henry Dawes. And what it was was that... Um, he said, he said something to the effect that, referring to the Native American people, he said, these people have no future. They don't own things. Um, uh, so what the Dawes Severalty mm. Act was doing was really an excuse to give land to the settlers. But what they, what they did, if I've got this more or less correct, is that, uh, I mean, I haven't thought about it for quite a while now, but they, um, they sort of um, took control of... Uh, what was had previously been considered uh, indigenous or native land, and then um, allowed them to um, have it back uh, if an, if they were an individual and they got a plot or something. You know, they wanted them to become owners of their individual plots of land in that sense. Mm. So, <clears throat> um, I remember reading a quote by um, a native woman who said something like. Um, you know, you, you, you people have your, you know, all your different things to protect yourself and all that. But what we have is we have relationships, you know. And so um, ideally at the best, in the best, you know, kind of purest sense or way that this has happened um, is that uh, economic uh, relations are based on um, uh, generosity, uh, collective trust. Uh, generosity and collective trust is one way to put it. Have you ever heard of Martin Prechtel? Mm-hmm. Oh, he's amazing. Mm-hmm. He's a wonderful writer uh, from my point of view. And he has a number of fantastic books, in my opinion. Uh, I believe the first one was called Secrets of the Talking Jaguar. 
Um, the short version of his story, if I can do it justice, is that he was half Hopi and half Finnish, like uh, one parent from Finland, grew up on a Hopi reservation. And um, the story is very interesting how he got there. But the short version is that he ended up in a town in Guatemala called Santiago de Atitlan, mm -hmm. where a couple of days later, the, 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 the most famous shaman of the area walked up to him and said, about time you got here, Curly. He said, I visioned you into this place because the junta are coming in about 10, 15 years. They're going to destroy whatever remains of our shamanic cultures and so on. I need somebody who understands this work to train and replace me because I'm near the end of my life. And it is you. And then you're going to take it away, take this understanding away. So he was trained by this guy became the village shaman or the and, and a whole bunch of other things. I think he headed the local government for a while even. He was there for 13 years. And sure enough, one night the villagers all showed up and said, Martin, you got to go now um, because they're coming. And so he split and went back to the States and started something called Boland's Kitchen and so on. Anyway, um, he said that generosity was the highest virtue or value in their culture. Absolutely number one. Um, and, and they would do things, you know, you've heard of the potlatch, I'm sure up here, you know, in the Northwest, we, the native people of the Northwest have had these potlatches where they give everything away, um, for certain special reasons and so on in, in that, in that town, in that culture, uh, Martin said, you know, somebody would just sort of out of the blue, just invite everybody over and just have a giveaway, um, and give away everything they had essentially, you know, but nobody worried about it because um, that was the attitude. Like, if you need it, you can have it. So if you gave away everything, I know that's what I mean. I'm, you know, I'm conf a confessed idealist here because this is a radically 180 degree <laughs> difference from the way we run things now. Yeah. But, um, but look at the, look at the results or the effects that, that this culture has on us, the amount of stress that's created, just trying to keep ourselves, you know, uh, above ground financially The, you know, you have to protect yourself. You have to, if you have money, you know, you have, you know, you're going to, you, you want to have all these security things and you have insurance and, you know, and so on and so on. And it's, and it's everybody for themselves or you and your family against the world in that sense, you know, it amount, it creates an immense amount of stress um, and, uh, and fear in a lot of ways, you know, you know, what if, okay, I have to do a slight tangent here. <laughs> One of the contributors to the book, Tyson Yunkaporta, who's, yeah. Amazing. Oh, I love him. Uh, his, he's got a book called Sand Talk, which I just love. Um, uh, subtitle is How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. <laughs> I think the publisher came up with that subtitle. Um, anyway, uh, he, he, he mentioned, uh, I'm not sure if it's in his chapter or in an interview I did with him. I have a YouTube channel, a Stephen Gray Vision, where I interview people like this. And, um, uh, Link Tyson, below. What's I'll, that? I'll, I'll put the link below for people Great. to click on yeah. that. So Stephen Gray, all one word, and then vision, and it's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G-R-A-Y. Anyway, um, somewhere Tyson mentioned something called the Dunbar number. Have you ever heard of it, John? Uh, that scratches an itch, but I, don't, I can't recall. Yeah. Well, it's supposedly it's around 150 to 200 people, and, um, and it's said to be the maximum number of people you can have in one physical community. Uh, and still keep things sane. 
for like if if you know if you st if somebody starts to get out of control ego wise power wise uh the community's there to deal with it if you know if you start to see sexual predation the community is there to deal with it and so he says well of course people are going to then object and say well that's not scalable you know i mean communities of 150 to 200 people and he says but he does this much more eloquently in, in detail than, than I'm saying here. But he said, no, it's not like that at all. He said, there's an immense amount of connection, interconnection and interbreed, even interbreeding actually, um, mm -hmm. uh, learning from uh, other no nodes, if you will, you know? Um, <clears throat> so, um, and in fact, uh, I think, you know, not necessarily by design, but by uh, uh, survival necessity, that's the way many, uh, indigenous communities have have worked in the past. Uh, you know, if you imagine small tribes all over the United States, for example, you couldn't marry your daughter within the tribe over and over and over again, right? You had to have relations with other other communities, and you know, uh, bring fresh blood in and shen, send fresh blood out and all that kind of thing. So they did have communities of roughly that size in many, many parts of many parts of the world, in fact, um, with a lot of interconnections. You know, the you ever what's his name? Bruce Chatwin? You ever heard of the song lines? No. Oh, yeah, what wonderful book about Australia um, and the Aboriginal people of Australia. Um, the song lines were these lines of communication that went uh, all across the continent, big continent, Australia, right? Um, and um, you would find beads. I mean, these were people that only traveled by foot. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know how far it is from the north uh, northwest uh, corner of Australia to the southeast corner of Australia, but it's probably a couple thousand miles. And you would find beads in one, in one, at one end of that line that were also found at the other end. They were trading all across that continent and sharing... Mm -hmm. Um, wisdom and you know information and everything like that you know um, even though they lived in small units so in part in terms of a treatment plan you know I know this is idealistic how do you take a city and <clears throat> break it down into <laughs> Dunbar units I have no idea but uh, um, you know uh, this all sprung from this notion of generosity because if you can bring it down to these small kind of communities, then people can have direct in economic relations with each other. Uh, people might be interested. I haven't read it for a long time, so I don't remember the details, but uh, Charles Eisenstein has an interesting book called Sacred Economics that addresses that issue that came out about hmm. 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. That sounds like a good read. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what what happens, though, in these small communities you're known, you're seen, you're held accountable. Mm -hmm. The it's like pack training, you know. You're able to, which is true. I mean, even the the work in attachment was that when we're in a community, we naturally mm -hmm. kind of can onboard our um, the 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 intrinsic aspects of our healing of our of our communication. So okay, we have small communities, and then we have entheogens or reality manifesting um, substances mm -hmm. and and that what i'm hearing you say on some level is a is a reset mm -hmm. right? it's that the culture the culture knowing if we could speak you know the culture knowing that these are inevitabilities just because of the nature of life and the way we function 
creates mm-hmm. this religious container around a sacramental substance that um, gives you moments of egoless awareness. And that we begin to recognize that reality is beyond what we perceive it to be. And our culture doesn't really have a container for that. So what, what does the indigenous wisdom tell us that we're needing? Because I, I, I think on some level what the, the problem, we, we can't borrow from other culture, right? That, that's kind of an empty approach. We can certainly mm-hmm. learn from and we can trade and share stories and bond and ask questions about what they do, what mm-hmm. we do. It needs to come from within us. So what, what does that even begin to look like, do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, again, you know, <clears throat> uh, under the guidance of Yogi Berra, if you don't have some vision of what's possible, then you don't even know what you're doing or what to work toward, in a sense, right. or what to, what to pay attention to. So, um, you know, the idea that we actually... Uh, you know, understanding it's a, it's not like it's a you know rocket science concept uh, to um, to consider for you know your quote average human being is that <clears throat> uh, you know one doesn't need to know the sort of the historical development of all this particularly, but you could accept perhaps the notion that over the course of history uh, we in the sort of what would you might call dominant cultures or whatever you want to call them the West as a, as an idea, so to speak, um, uh, have been taught this notion of separateness, you know? Um, and, and so that's who we think we are. You know, we, you and I both talked earlier in the conversation about, um, you know, collections of stories and so on that we put Mm -hmm. together and create this, uh, what, uh, um, people sometimes, what people call the false identity, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of uh, uh, Sigmund Freud's um, protégés, Otto Rank, uh, called it the false personality or the lie of personality, right? Um, we put this stuff together to survive in the world. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, um, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm, I, I forget what the actual question is now. I'm kind of going off into... Well, we're talking about the dominant culture and mm-hmm. you're offering up the sense of separateness because we're saying that yeah. it, it, obviously there was, we can project onto an indigenous uh-huh. community easily. and But really what I'm trying uh, to yes, get at yeah, is yeah. what, if our culture, let's just speak, right? Because our culture's sick. How do we create healing? What, in what way do you envision psychedelics could be used to treat what is sick in our culture, what mm-hmm. does that look like? Because it, it's not necessarily a maloka in the jungle or the rainforest. Mm-hmm. What does it look like here, do you think? Yeah, okay, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I've spoken already about this sort of twofold notion of, you know, truth serum and, uh, you know, opening one up to uh, what you might call unconditional reality so that we do understand, at least in that moment, that we are connected. You know, people that work with psychedelics talk a lot about how it connects us to nature and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we realize that we're not part of nature. Or we, you know, we get increasingly in love with uh, the majesty and the brilliance of all of nature, which we are also just as much a part of nature as anything else in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, um, uh yeah, how does that look like in our culture? Hmm, well, that's a big question, and I certainly wouldn't want to sound like I'm, I'm the authority on it or anything like that. Um, I, th- I, th- 
I think it probably is sort of in the ballpark of, um, as you mentioned, learning from other cultures. For example, I, uh, I spent uh, 12 years going frequently to Native American church peyote prayer ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And I've been around quite a few different you know, containers for spiritual practice with and without medicines, including Tibetan Buddhism for a long time. And um, I've, I've done probably two or three dozen uh, ceremonies with the Santo Daime people, the um, syncretic religion from Brazil that Bill Barnard is connected to, for example, um, <clears throat> that works with ayahuasca. They call it Daime. And um, uh, so I've seen lots of containers and they have a really good container as well. But the Native American church peyote prayer ceremonies of my experience uh, have an amazing container. Um, everything in that teepee for that night is about keeping the door open for spirit and truth to come in. Everything. The only rules that exist are for that reason. Um, and they say that when everybody can get their minds in one place, um, uh, in other words, get out of their heads for the most part, uh, then the spirit actually does come in to the teepee. Uh, but, he, uh, you know, the old roadman Ken Littlefish, who ran a lot of those meetings, he said, it's like a, it's like a deer. Um, it's like a frightened deer almost. It'll come in there, and if there's too much, um, you know, um, traffic, so to speak, head traffic going on in the teepee, boom, gone. But he said, you know, when you can get a group of people together that can get out of their heads and into their hearts and into this space of... Um, emptying into the presence, so to speak, um, that spirit will come in and people will see it. They may see it like as a little light. And, you know, in the morning you say, um, you know, I, I saw a little light come into the teepee and someone else will say, yeah, I saw that light around the same time. You know, it kind of goes like that, right? So I think the key for bringing these kind of medicines into our culture is understanding the power and the depth and as the spirit, you know, the, there's a fellow who said, we already have a full roster of speakers for our conference, but uh, one of the native people from this area has been a spokesman for his people for a long time is a guy named Reuben George. And he said, um, uh, or somebody, uh, Chief Phil Lane said, if, if anyone has to cancel, Reuben would be great. And, he, and what he would speak about is what's missing with psychedelics is the understanding of spirit, the connection mm -hmm. to spirit, right? So it's, you know, it's not this sort of mechanistic, physiological kind of thing on one level. It's, it's that um, there's a spirit, uh, you know, I know that's a big loaded word in a way, but um, there's some kind of um, spirit, spirit involved here. And it's the connection with spirit. Um, you know, uh, Ken Littlefish, the roadman I just mentioned, uh, he said, uh, relatives, that's the way they spoke to each other in, or <laughs> in the teepee there, you know, he says, he says, relatives, I want you to know something. When I'm running these meetings, he says, when I take that peyote medicine in these meetings and I'm running these meetings, he said, the spirit talks to me and it tells me what to do. And he said, I mean that literally. The spirit tells me, pay attention to this person over on this side of the teepee. He's having trouble. You know, say a prayer for him, sing a song for him, bring him some extra medicine, you know, take your feather over there and, or your sage or whatever, you know. Um, so um, somehow I think people need to understand that with, you know, not every, you know, some of the synthetics or semi-synthetic medicines, they don't necessarily, I don't know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm above my pay grade a little bit here, but I don't think they necessarily have, you know, a spirit behind them as it were, but they can open you up to um, the guidance that exists, so to speak, you might say. 
but certainly it seems like the the ones that are plant-based do that do have those kinds of connections cat harrison talks about uh, kathleen harrison's you know she's spent 30 40 years um uh, working with indigenous peoples in um, Central America and Hawaii and places like that. And she said all those indigenous people that she's known all essentially have the same belief, which is that every plant has a mother. She said some mothers are strong and some are weaker, but they all have a mother. So it's almost like you connecting with the mother of that plant. Or um, uh, Michael Stewart Ani in the book talks about the, the talking plants, he said. You know, mm -hmm. it's very, it takes a lot of skill. It's not an easy thing to be able to connect with the talking, the talking plants, as it were, you know, certain ways that you have to think and do and takes a lot of experience and, you know, guidance from people that know what they're talking about, which perhaps also comes back to your questions about learning from indigenous wisdom, because those people oftentimes do have that understanding in a way that you know, let's, this is a generalization, uh, John, but, uh, you know, here it goes anyway. <laughs> um, uh, I've heard this from a number of different people from outside of these sort of, you know, whatever we call them now, mainstream cultures or dominant cultures. Ken Littlefish said to me one time, he said, you know, hey, Stephen, I don't mean this in any judgmental way. It's just an observation from decades of living. And he said is that in general, the native people that I'm hanging around with and that I know, they their minds aren't as busy as you European based mm. people. Right. Um, and I've had I've heard that from other people like a friend in Thailand who's from here been living there for 20 years. He said his Thai friend said, oh, you Westerners, you just think too much, you know, um, and so, um, uh, <laughs> excuse me, uh, and then these are all just little anecdotes, all kind of, you know, roughly pointing in the same direction. Another person from that Native American church world was Susie Hawk. She and her husband ran a lot of meetings and um, sometimes he used to come up to Salt Spring Island here in British Columbia and um, run meetings for a, a group of um, non-Native people on one of our local um, islands here. and. Uh, uh, I went to one of them, and Susie was at them at that one. And she said to me one time, she said, "And uh, you know, if I if I could give you some background on Susie, I don't have, want to take the time to do that, but um, she's a person who's very connected to you know the the veil between the material and the spiritual spiritual mm -hmm. was extremely thin with her. Um, uh, she was aware of beings around and that kind of thing. Anyway, she said, really difficult for her to sit in the meetings that were run by the non-natives." Um, because they're singing these prayer songs throughout the night. She said, if they don't, you know, then, and anyone gets, everyone gets to sing the songs. It's, it's like that, you know, the, the, the instruments get passed around the teepee. And if you know the songs, you sing a set of four. So it's not like there's just one person, like the shaman up at the front doing that. She said, if you sing those songs and you don't know what you're doing, if you don't actually understand the spiritual power behind those songs, then you're creating tangled energies. And she said, mm -hmm. it's very difficult for me to sit in those meetings with those people because there's all these tangled energies, um, you know, moving around in the teepee, you know? So, so I think somehow we need that depth of understanding. Uh, you know, for example, in the ayahuasca world, traditionally in the mestizo uh, world of the upper Amazon, the, the apprentice uh, uh, would, would study for years, years, um, and they would do things like they would go into the forest with a plant, uh, a master plant, um, and spend a 
perhaps weeks, you know, a month, even more, um, alone in the woods, um, just uh, simplifying their diet down to next to nothing, you know, just like rice and plantain and no salt, sugar, alcohol, coffee, no sex, nothing. And then they take a plant with them. And um, uh, they when, when these plants, they call the master plants, right? Um, and there are many, dozens of them, perhaps. And, um, and they get to know that plant. They take it as a tea or whatever. And then they oftentimes connect, it, connect to it through um, incredibly lucid dreams that actually teach them. And so um, I did a ceremony in, uh, in, uh, near Iquitos in Peru one time years ago. And um, the shaman there, the, the ayahuascaro, had eight bottles of like um, uh, bottles that were sort of like larger water bottles, plastic water bottles filled with these dark, viscous looking liquids. And somebody asked him, what are all those liquids on your little altar there? Um, Percy, per his name was Percy Garcia. And he said, oh, well, when I was younger, I did diets, they call them dietas in Spanish, with each one of the plants that's represented in liquid form that's here on my altar. And he said, when I start every single meeting, the first thing I do is I thank all those plant doctors. And he said, they then come and work with me, hmm. right? So we get these, you know, so, so, the, so the potential problem here in our cultures is that we get these, all these people that, um, you know, here's the worst case scenario. You, you know, you, you, you do an ayahuasca ceremony up here or down in Peru or wherever, um, or you go down for a couple of weeks and you maybe do three or four or five and you come back and you think you know something, right? And then maybe you go down again a few months later and you stay for a month and some sort of um, dubious uh, self-styled uh, shaman says, oh, I think you're ready to be a shaman yourself. And then you go back and now you start building yourself as a shaman but you don't understand the depth of what you're doing. You don't understand that spirit connection. You don't know what those songs can do. You know, um, if I may just ramble one bit more, maybe just Please. to kind of drum it in. <laughs> um, another ayahuasca ceremony, or I did three ayahuasca ceremonies with the same shaman in this area outside of Iquitos. And um, the second of the three, they were like, two, three days apart. The second of the three was the most powerful ayahuasca ceremony I'd ever experienced in my life. And um, I was up all night, like usually you can fall asleep by about three in the morning, but I, I was up all night in the morning, we had a sharing session. And, um, you know, I, I uh, they were going to be doing another one in two days. And I said, I don't think I'll come back for that one. I think I got about six months worth of work to do here. Mm -hmm. And the guy said, well, come on back anyway, he said, you know, because I told him a bit about what I felt my obstacles were. And he said, come on back anyway, even if you don't drink the medicine, I've got a song for you. So I ended up getting an amazingly good sleep that night um, on the Thursday night at home. And I felt really refreshed. And I thought, OK, I'm going to go back and maybe I'll take a small amount of medicine. So I go back and I thought and I took about a third of the amount of medicine of the liquid, you know, that I had on that previous one. And, uh, you know, once the medicine is kicked in, uh, they invite each of the participants to come up and sit in front of them and they uh, light a mapacho cigarette that they pray with and then they sing you a song. They call them ikaros. So like an hour and a quarter in, I hadn't experienced anything really. Just this really, really, really light buzz, but really sweet, you know, really gentle, nothing, no visions, nothing. Um, and I thought, oh, this is lovely. I'm going to have a night off. I'm going to be able to get to sleep about midnight. It's all going to be lovely. So I go up, sit in front of the guy. 
fires up his mapacho and sings me a song, an Icaro. Um, as I'm walking back across the maloca, I start to notice something. And by the time I'm sitting down on my cushion again or my mattress, <clears throat> within about two minutes, it's gone from essentially nothing, like a sort of a 0.1 out of 10 or something, to an 8 out of 10, almost as strong as the one from two nights before that, on a third of the medicine. Um, and in the morning after that, I said to him, what was that? Did that have something to do with your song? And he said, you damn right it did. He said, those songs are beings. Those are spirits. And they come in and they say, I'm the song for this moment, for this situation, for this person, right? Hmm. So if you don't understand any of that, working with these medicines, how the spirit, you know, how essential a connection to the spirit of the plants is, or some kind of connection to the muse or whatever you want to call it, you're missing a huge component of what makes you a skillful ceremony leader. And then perhaps to wrap up, you know, the question, I think ceremonial work here, you know, mm -hmm. borrowing ideas, but really working hard if you're the one leading them to um, make those connections and do your own work. You know, obviously you would know this as a psychotherapist, John, you know, you, you have to be doing your own work. Otherwise you're starting to project your own problems into the situation. Um, you know, if you've got power needs, if you've got money needs, if you've got sexually unresolved issues that you're not clear on, all that stuff can, you know, because as, you know, the old cliche goes, and it is a true one, obviously, is that power corrupts, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, as soon as you have people looking up to you, whoa, watch out, buddy. Do your own, you know, do your work. Do your, do your work. work. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, this actually brings up a good thread, Stephen, is that... Uh, what are the problems that in, in all these conversations that you're having, what are uh -huh. the, the issues of what psychedelics are bringing online in our culture? Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. That's another, uh, you just opened another Pandora's box there, John. <laughs> um, I don't know how much longer you have uh, or how much energy, you know, for this I have anymore either, but um, um, I will do my best at that one. Oh, uh, okay. So the capitalist model is a problem. Um, do you know who Daniel Pinchbeck is? Yes. Yeah, he's kind of controversial. He's had his own issues with stuff of them, some of that stuff. But mm -hmm. I just saw one. I get his newsletter. Yeah, can't, I, get this, I, I get it too. I don't actually pay for it, so I don't get to read the whole thing. I always get to a point where it says, subscribe to, now to read the rest of it. <laughs> anyway, his latest one this week, which I didn't read, was psychedelic capitalism sucks. Right? Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah when it's being dominated by that same mentality that you know has been driving the world uh, you know the uh, profit making profit taking competitive um uh, you know model you know as the highest priority uh then it it's just going to get to a, a, applied to uh, whatever whatever field it is and in this case it's psychedelic so that's a problem um Another problem that people have addressed, and many people know far more about this than I do, is the potential uh, for over what you might call over um, bureaucratic medicalization of these substances. That if they're only controlled in terms of their entry into the legal market, if they're only controlled by um, you know the old boys club, as it were, then that's potentially a problem as well. Um, Coming back to the um, the capitalist corporate model again, I think there's potentially a problem. There's actually um, I, I haven't made a big study of this, but uh, I've heard in just little hints, you know, to give me the sense of it is that 
there are people, um, pharmaceutical companies that are trying to, uh, two things actually, um, they're trying to come up with um, uh, like modifications of the chemical configuration of some of these substances so they can patent them. But I think again, this mm -hmm. comes, this is sourced in a deep, deep misunderstanding of what they actually are. And this, especially the sort of spirit component or spiritual component of this. Um, so that's one, one problem there. And the other one is um, they're also trying to, they're also, as I understand it, um, uh, research going on to try to find, they're trying to figure out that could, could the medicine be effective without the psychoactive component, right? without the psychedelic component. And I think that's also sourced in a deep misunderstanding. You know, um, we just had a, I just found out that, uh, or just heard on the news that there was um, uh, an initiative or whatever you called it before Health Canada um, to approve uh, uh, psilocybin therapy for depression. Mm -hmm. And they sort of rejected it, um, not completely, but they said they would only approve it if all other modalities had been tried first, including the one that they focused on was uh, electroshock therapy. And I'm thinking, okay, you're putting electroshock there. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert. I don't know. You know, I know electroshock therapies come a long way in the last 50, 60 years in certain respects, but still you're telling me that electroshock therapy is in the same league and category as psilocybin therapy. Mm -hmm. That to me, again, speaks of a deep misunderstanding. Electroshock therapy, pardon me, you know, you probably know a lot more about that than I do, John, but my sense of it is it's a you know, it's going to shock you in a sense, or, you know, get a reset going there. But does it, is there any way that it's actually going to give you insight into yourself? It's assuming, it seems to me that psilocybin is a, is a, um, a mechanistic sort of a medicine, you know, that it has this physiological only uh, impact on you. But if you talk to the people that have taken it for depression and other things, similar things, um, they tell you it's it's what it shows you about yourself and about mm. your embeddedness in this larger reality that changes you, you know. Um, you know, you see films like Fantastic Fungi where they, you know, the work that they show the uh, near the end of that film, they show, interviewed a couple of the people that were in some of these Johns Hopkins studies. Yeah. And, you know, in the, in the Johns Hopkins work, for example, with, um, you know, terminal uh, you know, cancer people and so on, you know, the the ones that had that changed their attitude about their their condition the most were the ones who had the deepest mystical experiences that's a reliable finding from those sessions was that the people that reported having a powerful mystical experience were the ones who uh, dramatically changed their attitude about their life the most mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. yeah so so again, this is this is what needs to be understood. So there's the, the you know the, the the pharmaceutical corporate capitalist problem. There's the you know perhaps somewhat related uh, over medicalization or bureaucratic control of them is a problem. Uh, this problem of I mentioned earlier about people thinking they know things. You know, uh, you know we had a joke. I, I I'm sort of from the hippie generation and people were starting from scratch to, you know, do things like how to build a home and all these things. And I was living up in the country for a couple of years back then. And people were learning all these skills for the first time that other people had known for thousands of years. So we had a little joke. If you've done it once, you're an expert. Well, 
I think there's a little bit of an arrogance in our culture about that kind of thing in general, you know, that we think if we know a little, we know a lot. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think we have to humble ourselves and be patient. People, people want to be a shaman or something. You know, I once went to a Native American church ceremony where they were honoring some of the, the um, they call them roadmen in that context. And the guy who was running the meeting, you know, said to the group in the morning, which is when people express themselves generally after the long night of work, and uh, he said, hey, relatives, you don't want to be a shaman. You don't want to be a roadman. He said, you don't choose it. It chooses you. And if it does choose you, it's an arduous path. You will have responsibilities for the rest of your life, um, you know, to your community, to your people. Um, so, you know, I, I think perhaps there, there are people around that are taking the this idea of being a shaman or an ayahuascaro or whatever properly probably much too lightly mm -hmm. and again as i mentioned a few moments ago um perhaps not having uh, done enough of their own inner work to avoid uh misusing it as well as not understanding the depths of the spirit connection and all that kind of thing uh i don't know if i can think of any other particular problems associated with these things um i would say careful to buy your stuff on the internet you know there's a lot of you know there's no guarantee uh you know nate this is one of the things that native people are saying these days that to me that i'm hearing you know um, in conversation is uh, or indigenous people in canada and so on is uh, try to pay attention to the source of, of of any medicine that you're working with even things like sage you know uh, like if you if you want to try to work with sage, uh, you know, for smudging and healing, try to be aware of where it came from and who 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 grew it and what was their attitude about it. Um, you know, I had a previous book, Cannabis mm -hmm. and Spirituality, and um, you know, some of the people in that book talked about how I mean, there was one guy who was a grower, and he said people were always amazed at what's with this medicine. It's like no other cannabis I've ever smoked before. And he said, well, that's because. I put an immense amount of love into these plants from the moment, from you know, through the whole process. The water I give them, you know, the what I sing and say to them every day and so on and so on. And, you know, I don't know if there's good science for this, but people like him say the end user's effect, uh, you know, experience is, is, is different when it's, when it, when the plant is grown with love. And then also just, you know, the whole notion of reciprocity, which is a big one for indigenous people these days, like giving back respectfully and in various other ways, you know. So, you know, I, I could probably come up with a couple more problems, but maybe I should leave it there. No, that's it's solid. I, I, I just think you've done such a good job of getting this overview. I mean, so, so much of what we're not able to hit, and I hear we, we need to finish in a bit, but that that you, you gave this, the book, for anybody out there who will purchase this book, there's a solid tip of the hat to the lineage of psychedelics in this culture. Of course, looking at Hoffman and uh, Wasson and you know, Leary and uh, Richard Alpert, all these luminaries, Andrew Weil, that were involved in, up to Schultes and even uh, the ethnobotanists from the 30s and the 40s. That's this column of discovery that we're having to go elsewhere, go to foreign lands to, uh, on some level, repair what we dropped. Because mm -hmm. what I'm hearing you say is it's not that psychedelics are necessarily going to heal us. It's that the fact that our culture kicked out this divine inheritance 
because we've removed these sacramental substances mm-hmm. and ceremonies from our culture, we are sick. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so th- and not just that, uh, you know. And this could open up another half hour of conversation easily. <laughs> but um, I've also I've also been interested in um, this kind of I don't know what you'd call it an idea or maybe it's a historical fact. I don't I don't know. There's diff- people have addressed it in different ways. Um, have you ever heard of John Lamb Lash? I think his name is John Lamb mm-hmm. Lash. Um, he has an amazing book. I actually forgotten the title of it right now, but he did an incredible amount of research um, uh, on um, how the the ancient mystery schools that often in, did involve the medicines. He didn't focus on the medicines particularly, but he focused uh-huh. on the mystery schools um, of the pre-Christian era. Um, were all obliterated by the dominant mentality uh, all through Europe, through the Levant, through the through uh, Asia, as you know, to some degree. Um, uh, um, <clears throat> he starts off this book. Um, oh yeah, the book is called "Not in His Image." I forget the subtitle. Um, <laughs> what a good title! <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's from twenty two thousand and six, but it's very relevant. Um, and this guy did an amazing amount of primary source research, uh, and and it's surprising how much there is written in those times. You know that can still be mm-hmm. you know dragged out of obscure, dusty library shelves and whatnot. Um, anyway, he starts off the book by um, I think it was in around about 424 of the Common Era. Um, uh, a woman named Hypatia. Um, she was a revered figure in uh, Alexandria in Egypt, mm. um, and she was a representative of the mystery schools. Um, she was attacked and um, slaughtered by a mob, and he he makes that the kind of the marker point for the final death blow of the mystery schools. But uh, but he talks a lot about how prior to that, these pagan cultures throughout you know much of um, the old world, if you will, uh, were 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 doing just fine, thank you. You know, they didn't have <laughs> they didn't have a hierarchy. They didn't have sexual repression. They they had access to medicines of different kinds and so on, um, and they were you know gradually um, obliterated over time by you know the Holy Roman Church and and uh, and you know the Roman Empire and so on and so on. Perhaps one of the biggest you know greatest metaphors of all. Is the Temple of Eleusis and the, mm. the the Eleusinian mysteries that went on for I don't know several two thousand years 2000, or so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know all the great figures of Athens went there. The Picasso, I mean, pardon me, not Picasso, the uh, Plato's and the Socrates and you know all these people went there for this initiation, which by all accounts involved a uh, you know a psychedelic sacrament the kikion or the kikion or whatever you call it um uh and um and so essentially it influenced you know all these people who influenced some of our thinking even today but that temple was literally built right over top of uh you know the the next culture i'm not quite sure if it was the romans or uh, whoever built right on top of it and so all those cultures were destroyed and um so then i want to bring in philip k dick you know who he is don't you (laughs) Of course. Yeah, okay, so yeah, he's in a, he's in a good territory. Oh, yeah, he's a real out there guy, was. Um, 
So uh, do we have time for a little story about Philip? Please, yes. I oh, like where you're going. Oh, okay, well, he... I'm not sure how old he was, maybe in his 40s. This might have been in the 60s or so. I'm not quite sure. Um, he uh, he had a breakdown, uh, like a complete sort of nervous breakdown of some sort or another. Um, a number of things had conspired to create that. Uh, he'd been through some messy divorce. He had a five-year-old uh, child um, who, with an uh, undiagnosable illness. Um, he had been misprescribed a, 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 a psych schizophrenia medicine or an antipsychotic he wasn't supposed to get or something like that. Anyway, he had this breakdown and he spent uh, three days in a completely altered state and then another, I forget now, month or two or three in a, in a, in a, a level of that altered state. And during those first three days especially, but continuing, um, all these remarkable things started to happen, like strange things, like his completely healthy parrot just kicked over and died on its perch. Uh, he got a diagnosis of his son's illness, which he told the doctors about and turned out to be the correct diagnosis, which resulted in the healing of his son. And he started downloading what he called um, uh, a vast active living information system. And his next book was a novelized or fictionalized version of that, and it's called Valis, V-A-L-I-S. Hmm. And what he was downloading, he said, was um, this sort of Gnostic information. And the way that Dick talked about it is that, um, and Elaine Pagels in her book, The Gnostic Gospels, also talks about this from a different perspective, is that, um, you know, round about the time following after uh, the time of Jesus in the next hundred or two years or so, there was a kind of a battle for the for the dominance of ideas and in and, and how they impacted culture between the orthodox and the gnostics the gnostics this is a gross simple simplification i'm not the researcher expert on this whatsoever but um, as i as i think of it you know if you want to simplify it down the gnostics tended to be the mystics sort of idea they didn't i i think i remember hearing them say that uh it didn't mean anything to call yourself a Christian unless you were initiated, unless you'd actually mm. had the experience, which, you know, might be the medicine, for example, right? You know, mm -hmm. um, whereas the Orthodox were the ones that ended up winning that battle um, as the power hungry and the, and the um, control freaks of the world have always done up until now in general <clears throat> and obliterated to the best of their ability, any reference even to the Gnostics. And in fact, we probably wouldn't even know anything about them at all if it weren't for the discovery of the Nag Hammadi library mm -hmm. by some Egyptian teenager. <laughs> and those documents have been verified by, you know, the most thorough professional researchers to, you know, carbon date them and, um, and you know, confirm that the the way that the are I think it was Aramaic maybe language was used in the books it was the way it was being used at that time, and so there's this idea that um, up until now the control freaks have always won because they're trying harder. They want to control. Mm -hmm. The ones who are interested in experience, um, uh, <laughs> they're not trying to gain control over uh, over other people, so they don't try as hard and they don't win in that sense. <clears throat> and so we've had, you know, I think Dick called it the darker, the black emperor or something, or the demiurge, the f the false god. Oh, uh, Lamb Lash, uh, Lash, you know, pardon me, Lamb Lash talks about that as well, that, that uh, Christianity has been dominated by what he calls the demiurge, the false god who thinks he's God, 
so to speak, right? Um, and so Dick talks about that as well. You know, the, the yeah, I think he calls it the Black Emperor. And Dick, in Dick's idea, if I remember, I mean, this is really loosey goosey. Sorry, John, because I haven't read this book for twenty years, but I think he talks about how basically things just kind of stopped about two thousand years ago. You know, just a lid got put on the spiritual evolution of much of humanity certainly the all the ones that could could be within the reach of you know those people which is why the indigenous people oftentimes do still have threads of things to share with us because they didn't necessarily get taken over in the same way and certainly not until more recently at, for the most part right um but but the the key about all that is and dick said this too he said that's lifting now mm. um one of our one of the contributors to the book um Bruce Damer, who's also spoken at the conference, our conference, and will again speak at our conference this year. Um, he gave a talk at our conference a few years ago um, using the metaphor of the, the reopening of the temple. So he talked about Eleusis and how it was built right over top and how that was kind of not only a, a, a historical factual thing that happened, but a, also, a, um, you know, a metaphor um, uh, for what happened to the mystery schools and the pagan mm -hmm sort of more freer cultures and so on and so on, spiritually connected and unified, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> and that, um, you know, the, the work, you might say, the, well, the, the, the karmic point and the work now is the reopening of the temple um, of wisdom, of reality, of mm -hmm. unconditional reality, so to speak. And, you know, just to <laughs> drum it in one last time <laughs> i'll say that the psychedelics are here for that reason you asked that question um you know uh, some some people would even say that uh they themselves you know the spirits of those plants are are um are kind of coming in and saying hey folks you're not getting it fast enough we're going to help you we're going to give you these medicines the medicines themselves don't heal you you heal you but these medicines work with your systems in a way that allows you to open up to the potential. And then show up with everybody else in the world with love, acceptance, and forgiveness and bring that experience into your mundane daily existence. Absolutely, yeah. Well, if you don't, then one might say um, that you didn't learn the lessons that you know, yeah. the medicines we're trying to teach you. Tyson Yunka Porta has a lovely bit on that. He doesn't think you need to do these medicines a lot. Um, mm -hmm. He said he, he, I can't remember if it's in the chapter or in my interview with him. He said that uh, about 15 years ago, he had a really powerful San Pedro cactus, or also known as Huachuma um, experience. He said, I learned so much in that, in that, in, that was like a 12 hour journey. That I, I don't think I ever need to do that again in my whole life. He said, I've got a lifetime's work of, of, of instruction. Um, you know, it taught me what I didn't understand about women, um, uh, you know, about life altogether. And in fact, um, in his book, Sand Talk, um, he has these little symbols that are like little icon or whatever, little graphic things that are put in here and there. Mm -hmm. And uh he said he was shown those symbols during that San Pedro journey and then later, years later, was actually taught them by an old, you know, wisdom master 
who said, okay, I'm going to show you these symbols. And Tyson's going, wow, I saw those in my San Pedro journey years ago, right? So he has, I love his chapter in the book. He says, you know, before you go anywhere, you know, you, you know, you know, cavorting across the cosmos in great splendor with your medicines, understand something. You need to understand the rock beneath your feet. You need to understand your connection to the earth and to the community that you're involved in. And if you don't, you're not going to be given the responsibilities that these medicines can bestow upon you to do the work. And that's what I think you're talking about, John, is that, mm -hmm. you know, that the healing of oneself is just the first step, really. You know, if you, you know, if you, if it doesn't, I like the metaphor of like working on your car or having a car, you know, you know, you, you have to make the car roadworthy, but you don't have to spend the rest of your life tiddling with it, you know, in the garage and polishing it every day, you know, that's, that becomes too narcissistic. You've missed the point. The point is to, that car can take you somewhere. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. for some people, it's just the beauty of the car and that's okay too. But, you know, I think the metaphor, metaphor serves anyway, I hope, um, that the purpose of the car is to get you from A to B and the purpose of healing yourself is to participate in the healing of the planet. You know, there's a yeah. little saying, heal yourself to heal the world, right? Ah, amen, man. Yeah. Well, let's, let's uh, start to close our time out today and I'm wondering what threads are still out there that you want to fold into our conversation before we uh, before we finish up John I I, I feel like uh, <clears throat> it's been um, almost two hours yeah and uh, I, I've never been interviewed for this long and I don't think I've ever talked for this long either <laughs> um, so I don't I don't think I really have anything to add um, <laughs> Maybe, you know, if I have to add a, you know, a summation point, maybe it would be, um, hey, folks, please believe in the possibility of possibility. Um, uh, maybe there's a divine reality, which we've all been hiding from for one reason or another. We've all been afraid of. Um, but um, as the uh, you know, I have this lovely little book still on my shelf from way back in the 70s called The Lazy Man's Guide to Enlightenment. And uh one of the things he says in that book is, uh, go beyond reason to love. It is safe. It is the only safety. Mm. You know? So recognizing that that's our true nature, that we're afraid to trust life. And I speak for myself just as much as anybody else. I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't make any ridiculous claims to be enlightened or anything like that. Um, I'm just on the path, but I've had enough glimpses to know that, you know, there's a there there, as Yogi Berra might say. Mm -hmm. And it's here, here. <laughs> um, it's just something we, as Buddhists would say, we can land on. We, you know, it's not an add-on in a sense. It's a takeaway, you might say, learning to surrender, learning to trust. That's. Mm. A, I had a period about three, four years ago where um, that word kept coming up when I do medicine journeys and just in general, you know, like trust with a capital T. It's kind of like central, you know. Um, can we relax? Mm. Can we trust that if we if we don't, um, build this wall of protection around ourselves. We won't be destroyed, or what will be destroyed will be what we didn't want anyway. Um, we can fall into landing on, again, what my Buddhist teacher used to call what is, and we can mm -hmm. trust that. That's the, that's the journey. Um, and then everything else, in a sense, takes care of itself. If you actually, If we actually can do that, then we don't really need to... Well, maybe this might be worth saying. Um, as a metaphor, Ken Littlefish, that roadman I mentioned earlier, um, 
he said, relatives, stay behind the medicine. Um, and uh, what he meant by that is, you know, the medicine is the, is the teaching of the spirit, but it's a metaphor that um, <clears throat> if you get in front of it, that's your ego, that's your you enforcing your ideas upon things and not trusting uh, what um, uh, uh, Stephen Herod Buner called the golden thread, or I think William Blake initially first said that one. I think he might have called it the golden something or other, or silver thread or something. But the idea that if we can learn to trust ourselves in that sense, and you know the the divine reality, if you will, that's the state of peace and and so on, um, then things fall into place we just follow the golden thread mm -hmm. it, it it's a, it's a humbling of ourselves um and so you know the the true journey the true awakening healing journey pardon me i'm getting choked up about this actually um uh takes care of itself and so you don't even need to really worry about um in fact worry altogether is a problem but uh, um, you don't need to worry about how you'll do that because you'll just do, you'll follow the golden thread. You'll do what's natural to you. What You'll use your talents, you know, your compassion will guide you. You will care about the world. My old Buddhist teacher used to say, allowing yourself to be touched by the world, you know, and he said, the awakened mind is a mind of joy and sadness mixed together. <laughs> you know, sadness for the world, sadness for the tragedy of the fact that we're surrounded by the divine light all the time, right? And we're just afraid of it. We just have to learn to trust it. I think that I better a, stop there. That is a great place. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I can tell that feeling is underneath this whole book. Hmm. So thank you for your time. And of course, extending yourself, your uh, introversion beyond your perceived limits. But it's a joy to talk to you and to read your words. And thank you. Yeah. How did you know I was introverted? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I used to be. A, I I got two sides to me. I've kind of got the public side, but I was a really shy kid. You know. Yeah. I I I uh, I interact with a lot of introverts all the time. Those that mm. are closest to me tend to be introverted. Mm. I'm, a sh I'm a shotgun blast of extroverted feeling. <laughs> <laughs> much love Stephen. Yeah. thanks so much and thanks you know thanks for your interest and for keeping the conversation alive with a whole bunch of questions that um you know i and probably some people a lot of people could have done a, a more detailed and thorough job but each one each one of a number of your topics could have been like an hour discussion in totally. themselves and so you know i hope i've done some justice to some of yeah. these themes yeah thank you Oh